Hello, I'm Ian Skillicorn of Wyndham Books, publishing the work of Ursula Bloom for a new generation of readers as part of a long overdue revival of this very talented and special writer. In this five-episode series, I'm bringing you Ursula Bloom in her own words. In previous episodes, we've learnt about Ursula's life as a young woman in the Great War. In episodes three to five, we'll hear how she broke into the publishing world, her success on Fleet Street, and her achievements as a crime reporter. This is episode three. In our last episode, Ursula was left a widow with a young son when her husband died of Spanish flu at the end of the Great War. Now we rejoin Ursula as she takes her first tentative steps towards a writing career. This is Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words. I was a widow. I had a small income, a sick brother, and a baby son on my hands. It was now or never. I wrote stories which, in my foolishness, I believed to be delightful. I sent them to every magazine in England, and back they came with depressing regularity. In this dilemma, I called in Guy Thorne to help me. Guy Thorne had published a most successful bestseller called When It Was Dark, and I had known him when I was a child at St. Margaret's Bay, where everybody seemed to wash up at some time or other. On this very slender acquaintance, I persuaded him to come to tea. I don't think he knew what he was in for. I asked him about my stories, and most obligingly, he read one. It isn't a story. It's just a sketch. Which, of course, was true, but conveyed absolutely nothing to me, who did not know the difference between them. You've got to get hold of a proper plot and work it out correctly, he said. Otherwise, you damn well won't sell the stuff. How right he was. Unfortunately, I knew nothing about the working out of a plot, and I didn't realise that here was something on which I, in common with hundreds of other amateurs, was falling down all the time. It so happened that I had a bit of luck when I most needed it, for I fell in with a middle-aged gentleman who'd come down for a holiday, known affectionately as Colonel B. Colonel B. met me at a dance where I and several of my very fast friends were disporting ourselves in Victor's dance hall. Before very long, he was being told about my wild desire to write. He listened with interest that I found surprising. He said that the thing I obviously needed was a collaborator who could teach me the ropes. If only I would come up to town, he'd introduce me to a few knowledgeable people. I went to tea at his flat. He had found somebody who wanted a suitable collaborator. It was a reasonably well-known man-writer, who had already got one woman collaborator, but being capable of immense output could do with another. He himself could not put pen to paper, but knew everything that there was to know about plots and sales and editors, and would be the very man to teach me my stuff. It was arranged that he would call on me after dinner the following evening at the Burners Hotel. As the hour approached, I got clamorly nervous. Every likely-looking man who came in at the swing doors set me jittering. Then came a quiet-looking man in the forties, with the face of a sphinx, a black suit and hat, so that he looked like an undertaker. I found him brusque, extremely plain-spoken, and was personally very much afraid of him. He asked me about myself and my experience of life, 
and like a little idiot, I glossed over anything that had been real experience, but gave him a pretty picture of a ladylike little creature who sat genteelly and sewed. He wasn't much impressed. I felt all intelligence ebbing from my fingertips. But apparently he rumbled that I had put up an idiotic facade, for he said, Look here, send me along something you've written. I believe you've got it in you. You'll have to come up twice a week and we'll talk plots, you know. We could meet here, I suppose. On the first eventful Monday, the collaborator met me on the balcony of Berners Hotel, looking very serious and with notes in his hand. I was full of lion stew and Norfolk dumpling, though I pretended I had had lunch at Berners because I thought it sounded classier. The first plot was all about a hunchback who got himself washed up in a lighthouse and then proceeded to attempt rudery with the lighthouse keeper's wife when the husband was ashore buying the veggies. He had got the number of words all cut and dried, and the notes gave me the travelling speed of the story from one point to the next, all of which opened my eyes a lot. When finished, it was to be offered to the Premier magazine, and please, would I bring it back on Thursday? Certainly, said I, with some inward misgiving, but always businesslike. We had coffee, and I caught the 5.30 back to Frinton, feeling that really I was going to make good, except that I didn't know too much about lighthouses, and had an uneasy feeling that if I wasn't careful it might sound rather melodramatic, especially the last bit when he flung himself into the old leaky boat and got drowned in a maelstrom. On the Thursday I took myself off to Berners with the manuscript. My new collaborator had decided on a startling pseudonym. He had chosen the alarming one of Cashel Thunder. That'll make them think, said he. It made me think too. I thought it was awful, but couldn't very well say so, because obviously he knew better than I did. But Ursula Bloom and Cashel Thunder sounded fantastic to me. We went onto the balcony and I handed over the manuscript. I've always felt a pretty good fool when other people read my manuscripts in my presence, and although I tried to control my feelings of shyness, I felt deadly. Presently, he said, You can't spell. There's no Q-U in awkward. I'm sorry, I said, feeling unnerved. Why don't you look up the words you don't know in a dictionary? Because, said I truthfully, I don't know that I don't know them. He hadn't thought of that one. We went through the story inch by inch. He showed me where I lost points or gained them, and he cut out much of my verbosity, the amateur's staggering fault. Stop using colons, he suggested, and for Pete's sake leave off those exclamation marks. They're a disease with you. I sent off the story about the ambitious hunchback, and it came back within the week. When I told the collaborator, he was staggered, and said that it was up to their standard, and what the hell did they want? It returned with the same speed from the Red, the Royal, the Argosy, the Novel, and the Grand, until any thud in my letterbox told me that it was that infernal hunchback come home again. At the end of three months, we were still without a sale. I had learnt a lot, and was learning a good deal more, but I was finding my hopes pretty well dashed. We had a story on the go called 
The Phantom Third, and it was sent to the publishers Messrs. Arthur Pearson's in Henrietta Street, Strand. I got a letter back one morning asking if I would call and see a certain Mr. Lamburn about it. Naturally, I went to London next morning on wings, met the collaborator glowingly, holding out the letter. He said that I must go and interview the editor. He would wait for me in a coffee shop in the Strand, and I must be careful not to put my foot into it, but come back and tell him all about it before I said anything definite. So, off up Bedford Street I went, slackening a bit as I turned with horror into Henrietta Street and stopping at number 18. A commissionaire, whom later I was to know very well indeed, cocked a wary eye at me. Well, he said, I want to see a Mr. Lamburn. What name? Miss Bloom. And I proffered the letter. The commissionaire evidently suspected me, read it, gave it back to me, then rang up some unknown and probably terrifying quantity above. Go on up, he said with a jerk of his head. First floor, the door on the left. Up I went, with my heart making funny noises. I climbed the stairs in a mixture of terror and joy. I tapped on the mahogany door marked Mr. F. Lamburn. Come in, said a pleasant voice. I was in. I was the other side of the impenetrable forest of my youth. Six months since I'd started tackling it, but I'd got in at last. I prayed that it might not be an ogre. It wasn't an ogre. Quiet, dignified, and very sincere, Mr. Lamburn was sitting there with my story before him on his desk. Almost immediately he disillusioned me on the point of a possible purchase— he did not want to buy the story. Why is it a collaboration, he asked. Because I can't write plots. Why not? I told him my story. For years I had struggled to be a writer and it didn't come off. Now I was trying to learn something through a collaboration. Who did the plot and who did the writing? I wrote it. I can't do a plot. Yet. I must have been deadly earnest because he accepted me at my word. He handed the story to me. This won't do, and you must tell your collaborator that it won't do. But you can write, and if only you'll stick to it, you'll get on. In the doorway I said, I shall stick to it, you know. I must have looked very young and silly, but still desperately purposeful. We'll see about that, he said. Try a story yourself. You can do it, you know. As the door shut on him, I knew that I was going to be a writer. If you want anything badly enough, life gives it to you. That is, if you are prepared to back it with every ounce of energy that you've got. I had to go back and break it to the unfortunate man that Mr. Lamburn had asked for a story of mine with my name alone on it, and no Cashel Thunder attachment. I have got to say that he was awfully nice about it, which must have been difficult. He said that it was a good idea, and I must send Mr. Lamburn a manuscript straight away. And if I felt that I could do the stories myself, then for goodness sake get on with it and have a shot, because he didn't want to stand in my way. That evening he came all the way to Liverpool Street to see me off, and he had never done it before. Somehow, when I left him standing there, I felt terribly sad.
Now I could call in at Messrs. Arthur Pearson's offices, which was sheer joy. How great a joy, I very much doubt if the occupants there ever knew. I have never got over the thrill. Three stories were discussed with me, written and bought at three guineas a time. The funds were up. For the very first time I celebrated with a ninepenny lunch, and it might have been champagne for all the kick that I got out of it. Fame lay ahead of me, I was convinced. Already I knew one blessed editor, and he was very kind, but one wasn't good enough. Summoning all my courage and going, I am sure, very red in the face, I asked him for an introduction when next I saw him. He looked grave, then said that he thought I ought to be able to do work for Titbits and the Pictorial, both Tuppany Weeklies in the same field of action. He gave me introductions to Leonard Crocombe and Hessel Tiltman, who were the editors. Titbits, buying three short stories, paid me nineteen guineas, and when I saw the cheque, I thought they must have made a staggering mistake. On the strength of it, surely it was time to buy myself something. So I bought a hat. It was a frightful black hat, with imitation ospreys round it, and I was so excited that I insisted on putting it on and carrying my original hat away in a bag. I was fiddling about on the back doorstep of the Tuppany Weeklies, but they have constituted the stepping stone to fame for nearly all the great writers of both sexes, and they were reimbursing me. All jobs were experience, and experience was my password. By now I knew most of the editors of the Tuppany magazines, and some of the sixpennies and shillings. Then I met the writer Wyatt Tilby, who lived at Frinton. We travelled to and fro in the train sometimes. He said, If you're going to live, my girl, you'll have to write a novel. The last thing I ever wanted to do was write a novel. My seven passionate sex novels, all in the waste paper basket, had been paltry little thirty thousand worders. Now here I was, staring dismally at eighty thousand words, which looked like the doomsday book to me. Also, I had got to continue with journalism and keep my head above water in the field that so far I had broken into, and not lose what I had already made in an effort to expand my endeavours. I wrote the first three chapters very much on the crest of the wave, but at the end of forty pages I discovered that three hundred such would be next to impossible. I recalled the collaborated stories which had been written, but which had never sold. Could anything be more hideous than to think of the energy I would have to pour into my novel, then what worse tragedy than to have it, like the others, left on my hands? One day, travelling down in the train with Wyatt Tilby, I talked about it. He offered to read my chapters and see if they were worth finishing. I quite forgot that he had got the manuscript until some time later he said, I'd finish the book. It's all right and he then told me the firm to whom to offer it. With immense labour I finished it. At moments I thought it an inspired work, at others I thought it drivel, in which estimate, of course, I was far more accurate. I typed it out, never corrected a line of it, believing correction to be unnecessary, which goes to show that I had no idea what I was doing, 
Then I dispatched it without any very great hopes. For months nothing happened at all. Then one day Wyatt Tilby said, By the by, have you sold your novel yet? And I told him it was just sitting there. Stir it up, said he. So I returned to my typewriter and wrote a tactful letter. Dear Sirs, read the novel The Great Beginning, which I sent to you last March. I should be glad to know if you have come to any decision. Yours truly. This did as much as the first note had done, which was damn all. Silence. That was all. Defeating silence. A month later I woke one morning to find my small son beside me in bed looking peculiar. He had come out in spots. Ten days previously his grandma had treated him to the panto. This she had done reluctantly, saying that she disliked children going to public places because they always caught something. I had laughed at it. Well, he had caught something. He was as red as a raspberry with measles. It took me a little time to get the situation well in hand, after which I read my letters. The publishing firm enclosed a contract for my novel, offering me £25 down on day of publication and right of refusal for my next three novels. There was a long string of figures dealing with royalties, and would I please sign on the dotted line? I stared at that letter for one whole minute before I believed that it was true. Then up I sprang. I shot into the dining room and did a spirited seul. I dashed into my brother's bedroom, told him that our fortunes were now made, and then to the telephone to ring up the doctor. The baby's got measles and I've sold a book, I gasped. It's England in the 1930s, and Dinah Treves has a difficult decision to make. Should she stay in her comfortable marriage to the kindly, older Max, or follow young naval officer Piers to Malta? Dinah found security and affection in her marriage to Max Hale, but when she meets Piers Grant, she experiences passionate love for the first time. Loyal to Max, but drawn to Piers, Dinah is faced with a seemingly impossible choice. As Max confronts Dinah and Piers, he suggests three possible solutions to their dilemma. These three scenarios unfold before the reader, in which we see how each decision would affect the lives in the triangle. Whichever path Dinah chooses will bring unforeseen consequences. Dinah's Husband by Ursula Bloom is published by Wyndham Books and is available as an ebook exclusively from Amazon. Search for Dinah's Husband by Ursula Bloom and discover the repercussions of Dinah's choices. I went to see the publishing firm. I doubt if I ever felt the ground beneath me as I went up Ludgate Hill. It wasn't Ludgate Hill anyway, it was highway to heaven, and I had become a beatific person drunk on air. I asked to see the man who had sent me the contract. What's your business? asked the suspiciously minded girl at the pigeonhole, a girl with a quiff and a lot of false nasturtions at her bosom. It's about a novel that they want to buy, and for a moment an awful agony came over me that they might have repented at the last moment and not want it after all. She was a very dull girl. She did not realise that in my present state of mind she represented St. Peter at the gate. 
Go on up, said she wearily. Another of those soiled stone staircases, and a man who really wasn't interested. You just sign there, said he. I signed. That's all, said he. I'll send the proofs along. You won't hold them up, will you? Certainly not, I promised. But what did I do with proofs? I couldn't spell. I knew nothing of punctuation. How in the world to get out of this difficulty I could not think for the moment, but I'd do it somehow. Small things like proofs don't bar the way to the sweet and blessed country beyond. The firm would send me a copy of the contract, they said, and I walked out into my new world, feeling about as drunk on air as it is possible to be. This was no longer a drab city. It was my world. I walked down Fleet Street for the sheer joy of it. I could look the men and women in the face, for had I not had a book taken? Three more, too. Three more. Frinton, of course, wasn't interested. They had argued that I couldn't do it, and to find that I now had got a contract was annoying to them. I went to my best friend, a rather fast young woman, who I had hoped had my interest at heart. All she said was, Oh, do shut up about your beastly book. I really don't care two dams if you have sold it. I'm in a hole. My husband's found out about the brigade major in the London Scottish, and you can't imagine what he said. I could. I'd been expecting that for some time, and after her indifference to my book, I really didn't care what he said. This, I told myself, had got to be a bestseller, and it should be if wholehearted push could help it. Get some good photographs of yourself taken, said the publisher. So off I went and had some good photographs taken, and I was in such a seventh heaven of delight that any photograph would have been a wild success. I implored the photographer to make me look really old, which I believed would help the book a lot, little knowing. I was introduced to the firm's publicity man, who said they intended having some postcards printed to advertise the book, and as I undoubtedly had friends to send them to, how many could I dispose of? Arithmetic never being one of my stronger points, I said that I could do with a couple of thousand, which seemed to surprise the publicity man a good deal. You've got a hell of a lot of friends, said he. The first things to deal with were the proofs. Two sets of galley proofs arrived at my house, and a copy of my own rather battered manuscript. All of them were marked urgent in large letters and looked important, the accompanying note begging me not to delay their return. One of the sets was inscribed, Marked Proof. The other was apparently the unmarked proof, though it did not say so, and what I did with them I had no idea at all. So up I trotted to Wyatt Tilby to ask what to do. He was always my refuge in time of trouble. He said that I corrected the marked proof and kept the unmarked proof. Then he warned me that the publishing firm allowed six pounds only to cover their mistakes, and any more private alterations that I made off my own bat would be debited to me. I should have to pay any difference there was myself and if I went wholeheartedly at it, I might find it to be considerable. This was horrifying. Supposing that I spent the whole of my twenty-five pounds advance in corrections, whatever should I do? The obvious answer was to take no risks and not do too much. 
After all, I argued, for a book to be accepted at all showed that it needed very few corrections. How I flattered myself. I thought that the proofs looked quite marvellous. Most authors delude themselves this way. I really wouldn't have believed that my book could look so good, I told myself, and undoubtedly all my friends would be enormously impressed. Laboriously I dealt with the first page of the marked proof, one long, interminable page, to find no mistakes that I recognised at all, and then wondered what the next move was. I looked dubiously at the second page, but by this time I was tired of the work. Correction was never my strong line, and I couldn't be bothered. It seemed logical to gather that the publisher's proof corrector himself knew more about it than I did, and it seemed only polite to let him have it his own way. In fact, I argued that it would be quite impertinent for me to interfere. Glancing hastily at the rest of the proofs, I let it pass, doing it up and dispatching it well within time to the firm. That's one milestone passed, said I. The trouble being that, of course, it wasn't passed. It was very much to come. I had made a hopeless mess of the thing, but didn't know it then. I now had a little trouble with a most bewildering thing called a blurb. The publisher's note asking if I would let them have the blurb sent me dithering. I was apprehensive that here was another of those snags that seemed to be eternally cropping up in the life of a first novel. I went off to the Tilbys again, but this time they must have seen me coming because they'd gone to Harrogate for a month and left no address. I went up to London and mercifully met Gwen Gilligan, the editor of True Story magazine, for which I'd also written. We went out to have a coffee at a little cafe called Mrs. Jones, an underground place where you got delicious coffee, and bought marvellous lingerie at absurd prices at the same time. Undoubtedly they were stolen goods. Gwen said that a blurb was the synopsis, the little advertising bit that tempts readers to buy and is put on the jacket. I felt a pretty good fool as I asked what the jacket might be. Apparently, it was what I had always called the paper wrapper. But, said I, remembering the eulogistic phrases that I had read on these wrappers, surely they cannot expect an author to write that sort of stuff about herself. Oh, but they usually do, said Gwen. This was an eye-opener. I began to think considerably less of the writing friends who had written their own blurbs, which did not raise them in my personal estimation. When I finished it, the blurb had to be entirely rehashed by the firm. I rather hedged the brilliant young writer business and a first book of great promise, etc. Eventually, one day in May, my book was published. I saw it advertised the night before in the evening papers. Six copies were dispatched to me from the firm. Gwen took me out to Chiro's to celebrate it. I know I wore one of those frightful matron's hats that I insisted on wearing to give the idea that I was a woman of the world, and from under this hat must have looked very dewy-eyed and foolish. On the train back to Frinton, nobody seemed to know that my book had been published. Really, I thought, how unobservant the world in general is. The first review was, I considered, unkind, little realising how far too kind it really was.
Other reviewers said that I had talent, but why in heaven's name had not somebody gone through the proofs? The answer was, of course, that the only person who'd gone through the proofs was one entirely unqualified to do so. The next agony was as to what I did about the second book. I dreaded the upheaval of writing yet another, and now when I came to think about it, I wasn't at all sure that it would be accepted. Having told everyone in my first delirium of excitement that the contract was for three more, which I had thought it was, I could not very well ask for guidance and direction as to whether it meant that the firm had got to buy my next book, or whether it was only that it had to be offered to them as the first one had been, on the good old system of hit or miss. I eventually distributed a few discreet inquiries as to what the contract actually did mean, and it turned out to be that I was obliged to offer the next book, but that the firm was not obliged to accept it, which I thought a most unsatisfactory state of things. Now I was introduced to someone who really was able to help me. I met Michael Joseph. At that time, Michael was the manager of Curtis Brown Limited, the agents, in Henrietta Street. I went there originally to see Nancy Peem about short stories, and she told me that Michael wanted to meet me. When I saw him, I found his face familiar, and discovered that he had worked for a time for my publisher and had lent his face on one awful occasion for the real photographs that illustrated True Story. It had been for one of my worst efforts. He was the seducing owner of the big store, who, interviewing the poor little girl who had stolen a silver bag to buy food for a sick mother, said he would not prosecute if she... etc., etc. The etc., etc. part was illustrated with a photograph of Michael sitting in a bedroom wearing a top hat. I cannot think why he wore this but there he was with walking stick and smart suit while the girl was standing crying and wearing a very airy fairy princess petticoat. Michael glossed over my first publication, which, like myself, he thought little of. He said that we must get a good title for the next book and as it had gypsies in it, it ought to be something about vagabonds. Vagabonds read well. He went through words that go with it. Ah! he said at last. Vagabond harvest. But what does it mean? I asked. Not a thing, said he. But that doesn't matter. He was quite right. Michael had a positive genius for choosing titles and for guiding foolish young writers in the paths they should take. Thank God that I met him. I typed out Vagabond Harvest and sent it along to the publishers. Silence. As nothing happened, I became extremely frightened. To have to admit a complete flop to the world in general would be horrifying now. One weekend, I found one of the leading lights of the firm walking down Pole Barn Lane at Frinton, where I now lived, and trying to find my bungalow. The bungalow was called Storiette, being built entirely out of the money made by stories. The leading light, seeing me, said, Oh, I happened to be staying the weekend here with your publisher and wondered if you'd care to dine with me. We went out to dine at the Grand. Now, thought I, he'll be sure to mention the book. He did. 
It was after dinner, over the coffee, and there was the manuscript suddenly produced and lying on the table. Now, what about this? said he. Agony came over me. Oh, horror! He was going to say that it was awful. What do you think of it yourself? he asked. I think that it's much better than the great beginning. Truly, I do. We're strongly tempted to take it. We think you are worth keeping. I wasn't quite sure what he meant by that unfortunate remark, but glossed it over and murmured something about the enormity of my gratitude. Lunch with me at the Ritz on Wednesday, he said. I'll have a word with the head of the firm by then and we'll let you know the result. The Ritz! Naturally, I had never been inside it, but all my life had spoken of it with bated breath. The grill room entrance, said he. You know where I mean? Yes, yes, oh, of course, I lied. It would never do to confess what a wretched little country cousin I was. And then what happened? Just as I was all keyed up for the stately approach to the Ritz Hotel in a new hat, and with visions of all sorts of adaptions to my various journalistic activities of copy from this great and magnificent place, he telephoned that he was called out of London and postponed the meeting. Sorry I'm delayed. Can't work it. Anyway, we're keeping the book. This episode was edited and produced by me, Ian Skillicorn, for Wyndham Audio. Ursula's words are read by Lisa Armitage. To listen to the whole series, subscribe to Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a positive review. It will really help us to spread the word. Find out more about the life of Ursula Bloom and where to buy her books from the official website, ursulabloom.com. Join me again for episode four of Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words. <laughs>